This is the day the Lord hath made. We will and be glad in it. Thank you for that song. Dorothy and Richard McMillan uh, asked for that song, His Mercy So Great. And anyone that's been married 70 years can ask for anything. So Richard and Dorothy, would you just stand right where you are? Just stand, please. Thank you so much. Uh, Paul asked me to make that uh, announcement and uh, so grateful. I'm going to have you turn your attention to 1 Samuel 17. And as you're doing that, just to say a word uh, that so many people are asking how, how the seminary is going. And I would just say two things about the seminary. Number one, it's so exciting for Martha and me to come Sundays when we're here to be at this church and to be under Pastor Brent's ministry and to see what God is doing among us here. If we have a strong church, we're going to have a strong seminary. It doesn't work the other way around. And so we're very grateful to the Lord for what God is doing at Colonial, and it's a joy and delight uh, to be under the, the, the gift from Christ to this church, according to Ephesians chapter 4, who is Pastor Brent, and to be under his ministry. So we're grateful on that side. On the other side, we have just experienced some amazing things since January. Many of you are aware in January we we're looking at about a 70,000 deficit uh, in the seminary. And uh, the Lord not only did that, but exceeded that. And so we finished the year uh, in the black. Our year goes until June 30th. And we're very grateful to the Lord. And I, I wish I could tell you, there's so many stories, people in this particular room that I can't uh, say because I know it's private. But I will just say this too. There, there are families in the church that even for the message today, I go to the library and take out a big hefty book like this one on 1 Samuel, which is a Hebrew exegesis. It's a Concordia commentary. And this family continually takes the heavy duty, expensive books and quietly just buys them, gives them to Dr. Mike. And you should see Dr. Mike dance in his office when he gets these things. <laughs> And uh, it, is, it is so sweet, that uh, blessing, and uh, very, very great, grateful to the Lord. So whether it's something that is just, uh, you would never think about, maybe, but academic books are extremely expensive, or people who are just uh, week by week, month by month, supporting the seminary. Tony Brazes, our CFO, says that uh, this has been an, just an unbelievable eight months for the seminary, and I just want to give God all the praise, glory, and honor. So whether it's $10, or whether it's $10,000, and I've received both of those this week for the seminary. Whether it's in any of that spectrum, it, it doesn't matter because God's in control, he's sovereign, and he is doing what only he can do. So I just want to just give praise to the Lord and thanks to this church. Without you, we would not exist. And uh, I know some of you want to give me pink slips when I show up after being away for several weeks, but I'm not at home sitting on my deck drinking lemonade while Pastor Brent is preaching her. Okay, so I'm at a location, but uh, it is a great joy to pray for you as I correspond with Pastor Brent even this weekend on a number of issues. It's just great to have a man of God who is leading us and directing us as Christ's gift to the church. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where our thoughts are going to be today. And I want to make very clear to all of us that when you come to this story of David and Goliath, it is probably the most widely told story in the Western culture. I mean, people who haven't even read the Bible know about this story. 
But let me just tell you up front, the story is not about David or Goliath. The story is not about Israel and the Philistines. The story is not about Saul or Eliab or even Jesse. The story at its core is about God. So I hope you keep this in the back of your mind because it seems to me amazing how all the different individuals want to take this story and sort of uh, move it beyond the bounds of scripture. And I don't know if I can do this right or not, but here it is. Here's, here's the business sector. You know, you got this Goliath cor corporation. And so it becomes a motivation for small businesses or there are governments, you know, the little people who are sort of ostracized by a government out of control can band together and can make a difference. So you see these cartoons, David and Goliath imagery that's there, or Hollywood gets into it and the title of theirs, I will do it as if David is going to do something. Uh, no, and then I wonder what about our Sunday school literature? You know, as you look through the Sunday school literature that's out there, David and Goliath, I mean, is this really what the story is about. So I want to challenge you in just a few minutes I have concerning what the biblical text says in chapter 17 concerning David and Goliath. And I want us to be challenged uh, on two fronts. I want you to understand that every story in the Old Testament is connected. It's not some disconnected event that takes place and then something we can talk to our kids about, whether it's Daniel and the lion's den or, or back with the plagues of Egypt or right here, David and Goliath. They are all connected. And to understand chapter 17, you've got to understand for Samuel. For instance, just look at a couple of things. They turn back, if you will, to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel and verse number 14. Notice what the text says. Saul is being rejected as king in verse number 14. But now your kingdom, Samuel says to Saul, shall no longer continue. The Lord has sought out a man. And what's the next phrase? After what? After his own heart. You have to get this. I have to get this as I work through the biblical text because there, it's a connected statement of God. And the statement of God is the ruler, the theocratic ruler over this theocracy called Israel. His name is Saul. And God says in verse number 14, I reject you, Saul, and I'm going to get somebody whose heart is someone I can work with. It's after me. Look at chapter 16. Remember when Samuel goes to uh, Jesse's home in Bethlehem, and there are seven sons that parade before him. And the first one in verse number four, it says, uh, verse number six, and when they looked on Eliab, he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. And the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or on the height of his statue. That's an important statement in chapter 16, 17. Don't look at his appearance and don't look at his height. I have rejected him because the Lord does not view life as men view life. He does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. You can sing beautiful. You can come dress up to church. God is not impressed. He is looking at hearts. So when you consider David in chapter 17, what you have to keep in the back of your mind is this guy was selected by God to be the theocratic leader over the children of Israel because he has a heart that goes hard after God. 
He's not being selected because he's handsome. He's not being selected because he's tall. He's not being selected because he has charisma. He's not being selected because he can put nouns and verbs and adjectives together and move people. He is selected because God saw his heart. And when he looked at his heart, he said, there is the man I can use. I think it's extremely important that you do not divorce chapter 17 from what has taken place up to this point in the book. But then while you're here in chapter 16, look at the second verse I think is important to pick up. Verse number 13, chapter 16. And Samuel takes a horn of oil on the eighth son, who is David, and anoints him in the midst of his brothers... No conversation, but notice the next phrase. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. That is an excellent translation in the ESV. It rushed upon David from that day forward. And Saul goes to Ramah, verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord did what? It departed from Saul. Turn over to chapter 18, if you will. Verse number 10. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Same word. Here you've got the rushing of the spirit, this theocratic anointing upon the leader. And this was to, de- to be a declaration that God was with this man. That's what it means. So that when David writes in Psalm chapter 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, and he says... Uh, that I don't want you to take your spirit from me. That's the second part of the verse. The first part of the verse, verse 11, is don't move your presence from me. I don't want your Holy Spirit to go away as it did with Saul. He saw what happened when the spirit departed, rushed away from Saul. Because to be a leader in the theocratic kingdom, it needed the spirit of God and his presence upon him to lead this theocracy. Without the spirit of God, you go raving mad. And Saul is an exposition of that. On the other hand, David experiences the rush of the Spirit of God upon him that lands upon him, that distinguishes him from all other leaders in Israel. And this David is a David who has leadership potential because the Spirit of God is upon him to lead. So you keep these verses in your mind. God is looking at the heart. God's presence is with this young man. And he's going to distinguish himself. What's interesting to me is it's going to take chapter after chapter after chapter to show the Israelites and to show the armies that God's presence is with him. There's no sign that David walks around the camp saying, God's spirit is on me. God's spirit is on me. That's not the way God works. But over time, beginning with chapter 17, over time, people begin to take a step back and say, whoa, look what's happened to Saul. God's presence isn't with him. Look at David. God's presence is with him. And over time, they begin to see God working in this man. He's not perfect. We know the stories. We're not looking at perfection here. And that's what gives us great joy for people of Christ. That God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking at hearts. 
And he's looking for people that when they get in life situations, what comes out of their lips and out of their actions is the presence of God. They become a testimony that God is living. So when I look at this story, chapter 17, chapter 17 then is, is really a powerful example, a powerful point, if you will, of the work of God in a man's life. And this young man is David. Now, I'm not going to give you, and you can breathe a sigh of relief, 58 verses, 912 Hebrew words in this chapter. It is the longest Davidic narrative in the Old Testament. So I'm not going to give you an exposition, but here's what I am going to do. The most important thing we probably can do today is read the holy text, because this is God's word. So the way I want you to read the text is this way. Look on the screen. I want you to see the flow of thought. The very first thing that's going to happen is you're going to see the setting of the story, and you're going to be amazed at this giant size. But remember, in chapter 16, God said, don't look at height. Don't look at, at appearance. You're going to see military equipment like you've never seen it before. You're going to see insults as you've never heard before. And then you move from there to find out, well, how does David get in this picture? Because he's taking care of his father's sheep. Meanwhile, his three older brothers are out there fighting the battle, or at least he thought they were fighting the battle. Well, that's going to take place. And then after that, you're going to have, in the next few verses, the very first speech of David in the Bible. So I'm really interested. What are the first words that come out of David's lips who has a heart that's after God and on whom the spirit rests? So his first speech. What's amazing is there's not just a first speech, there's a second speech. And this second speech is to Saul. And the next thing that's amazing is there's a third speech. And that's to Goliath. You have three speeches of David in this chapter to challenge you, to challenge me, the reader. And remember, let's keep it connected with the rest of the book of Samuel. Amazing victory takes place, and then finally there is an aftermath. So I want you to follow along your text. I will have you stand, if you're able, I will have you stand near the end of the text. You can go, okay, it takes me a few minutes to read. I've timed it, and don't time it, okay, but I timed it. And, uh, and so I want you to follow along because this is God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered to Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Azekah in Ephes Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, had a helmet of bronze on his head, armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, over 100 pounds. He had, a bronze, he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, that's on his back. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and a spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not slaves of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. 
If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your slaves. If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our slaves and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they sang the doxology. No. They were terrified, greatly afraid. And David, the son of the Ephrite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons, in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Amminadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The, eld the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. That means 80 times this took place. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves, carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of the thousands. See if your brothers are well, bring me back some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment of hosts that was going around to battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks to, to, and greeted his brothers. He talked with him, behold, as he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, came up out of the ranks of Philistines and spoke the same words as before. But look at these four words. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, give him his daughter, and make his house tax exempt in Israel. Wow. And David said, first words, to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills a Philistine and takes the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall be done to the man who kills him. He's, they're talking about the finances and the tax exemption. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done? Was it not just a question, a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And look at answer again. The people answered again, just like they did before. Man, you, you, king's son-in-law, money, tax exempt. When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul. And so he sends for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, in the Hebrew, there's a laugh. <laughs> you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. 
and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And he rose against me. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Remember his heart, remember the spirit of the Lord. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. That which he did not have, he is wishing for David. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor, tried in vain to go, for he had not yet tested them. David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, and he said, he saw he was a youth, ruddy, handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come with me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh Zabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine army this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly will know that God the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came near to him, to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with sling and stone and struck the Philistine, killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And the Philistines saw their champion was dead. They fled. And the men of Israel... And Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. Sharim, excuse me, as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to, what does your text say? Don't forget that. But he put his armor in his tent. However, in the meantime, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this? And Abner said, as your souls live, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose, son, whose boy it is. And as soon as David returned from striking the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. He had yet to go to Jerusalem. 
And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And the, David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. These are the words of the Spirit for us today. So when I look at this incredible text, I have just a few minutes left to give to you a couple of thoughts that relate to the speeches of David. You can do your own study. You can do your own thinking. But I think that the emphasis here, since these are David's first words, the emphasis of the author is to get us to think with the author. And we've already got the context back from chapter 13 to chapter 16 that David's heart is in the right place. Nobody knows about this except God himself. And also that the spirit of God now rests upon him. And nobody knows that except his own family. And his brothers sure aren't going to tell everybody so here you have this incredible setup, if you will, concerning the three speeches. So let's look at, at speech number one. Speech number one, you see this in verse number 26. And in verse number 26, what stands out is David hears everything that is stated. And he is here, as he hears everything that is stated, he makes two statements that are really questions in your English Bible. Question number one is this. Is your only concern... How great it will be for you if you kill Goliath. Is your only concern the taxes, the king's son-in-law, and the money? Is this your only concern? And question number two can be summed up this way. What about God? What about God? And he identifies him in verse number 26 with a powerful statement that he is the living God. Now, what that means is this. It means he is sovereign. And what it means to be sovereign is this, that God is living, not dead. He's, he's alive, not dead. There's a contrast. But also one other thing, he's not only just alive, but this particular God, as David announced him, the living God, is also a God who is active in the history of mankind. In other words, put it this way, history is the theater of God. St. Augustine called history his story. History is the theater of God. The drama of God's glory and plan is being worked out. You say, I, I don't get that, really. Let me tell you something. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and there you will see the seraphim as they are flying around the throne. As they're flying around the throne during some very difficult days, they're saying this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But there's a second part to the verse that we rarely quote. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6.3. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's all a matter of perspective. So when I look at what is taking place here, what David is saying is that you people need that your thinking is wrong. The starting point for real thinkers is that we are theocentric. We are God-centered. So no matter what event takes place in our life, surprising event, wonderful event, planned event, not so planned event. No matter what takes place in our life, we are so theocentric, we are so God-centered that the starting point is this, our God is living. And when we say he is living, we know that he is working out his drama on this earth through time, space, matter. We call it history. God is at work. 
Now, when people don't see a living God, they can be Christians, they don't see a living God, then they will say, God, you miss this one. They will say to God, you miss that over there. Or you could be like Rabbi Kushner in his book, you know, why the bad things happen to good people, where it was a number one bestseller because his 14-year-old son died. And so the way that he was able to work through that was this. God is a great being, a powerful being, but there's so many things going on in the world that sometimes people slip through the cracks, and that was my son. It's okay, God. It's okay. I don't hold you responsible. But that's the way he views life, viewed life. See, so when I see David here, there's a powerful statement to this speech. It is no wonder that when you read Psalm 42.2, which actually are the words of Korah, Psalm 42.2, you see this statement. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I wonder if you have a thirsty soul today for God. I wonder if I have a thirsty soul for God. See, my soul is thirsty for God, the living God, the God who is alive and the God who is acting out his glory in the drama of this earth. That's his first statement. Let's look at this question I would just ask. What kind of God do you serve? Is your God this God. Speech number two, verse 34. This is to Saul. And I want you to notice something, and this is an incredible statement from verse 34, 35, and 36. You have, and really 37, it's all one cohesive speech. But notice in verse number 37, it begins by, and David adds. You know, breaks it up, so you catch 37 as the key statement of David. So in verse number 34, he says to Saul, okay, I took care of the lion, took care of the bear. Verse 35, I struck him, delivered him from their mouth. Verse 36, your servant has struck down lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of those, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David adds, or highlights, or makes clear, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see, David had courage within his heart because here's what David could do. David could look back as a shepherd boy. He did not see warriors that God brought him through and he was about ready to lose his life because maybe there were some Amalekites out here that going to take his life or some Philistines. No, but it was a bear and it was a lion. Can, can you be much more powerful in the animal kingdom than that? And David's heart was this way. He saw the bear and the lion and the deliverance from those two as a blessing from God. So David could look in his life, in his past, and say, in my short-lived history as a youth, I can look back and see, look at the hand of God. God has worked in my behalf. Will God forsake me now? Not if he's a living God and not if he's a God that is very concerned about his glory. So I think of this, how David took courage in his heart by the past events, and he, ran, and he brings forth these past events to help Saul understand his perspective. There's so many places I could go. I, I, I just read this week from Joshua, Joshua chapter 3, 
I love where Joshua's there standing at the, at the riverbed of Jordan, overflowing the banks, all that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, it says that, that the, the living God, that's the term, the living God causes the water to stand up and everything is dry and the children of Israel are going to walk across. And then they take men from the tribes who take large stones out of the middle of the riverbed take them over to the side, and when the water comes back, there are these 12 stones, and these will be a reminder, he says in Joshua 3, that you can tell your children and your children's children of the greatness of God. And if God did this, he can do whatever that is. You see, the beauty of your testimony the beauty of your testimony is God's way to give you courage. If God can save you from hell, he can keep you from this, whatever the this is. If God can give you his spirit, and if God can give you a position with him seated in the heavenlies as good as there, then God can rescue you from this, whatever that this is. Does that make sense? You see, the beauty of understanding, that's why I love it when people journal. Wish I was a better journal. I've done it sporadically. Sometimes I'll go back and just read through. Wow, God did that. I'd forgotten about that. I ask you this question. Where do you get your courage from? How do you get your courage? I mean, do you look at your bank account and say, ah, okay, I can do it? Do you look in the mirror and say, oh, yeah, I, I, can, I can do this? How do you get your courage? Well, look what David's speech is all about. David was totally focused on God. God did this, and because God did this, he can do that. It's all about him. It's not about David's strength, David's appearance, David's lack of height, or David's lack of military experience. If God did this, he can do that. You look back and say, God did this, then he can do that. And courage comes from the Lord. Speech number three. This is an amazing speech. If you came face to face with Goliath, what would your first be, words be? I'm out of here. <laughs> Is that your first words? <laughs> Might be mine. I don't know. But I love these words. Look at verse 45. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh Zaboth. I come to you in the name of the armies of Yahweh. And that is used for the armies of the stars and the sun and the moon, the armies of Israel, the armies of the world and the earth. In other words, this God, Yahweh Zabaoth, this God is in charge of everything. What's so cool is how 1 Samuel begins with a, a, a woman who's barren. Her name is Hannah. Now you see her, she cries out to Yahweh Zabaoth. Yahweh Zabaoth, who's in charge of all things, even my barrenness, I cry out to you. And here you have two amazing illustrations of two unknown people to the outside world, a barren woman and a young teenager. And here both of them cry out to Yahweh Zabaoth, their heart was where it needs to be, and God delighted in showing himself powerful. Because he got all the glory. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down, cut your head off. 
I'll give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, wild beasts, and all the earth is going to know that there is a God that is alive. He's in Israel. So when I look at this, because of time's sake, I would just ask this question. <laughs> what is your dominant purpose in life? Is the glory of God? No matter what issue comes in front of you, is it your reputation? That's the most important thing. What issue comes in front of you? Think of your family. Think of your husband. Think of your wife. Think of your children. Think of everything in your business life. Think of everything in your neighborhood. What, what is that which, which is your dominant purpose? Is it the glory of God? Because history is the theater of God. He is working out his drama for his glory. And if we allow the Old Testament to speak, which many are not, just allow it to speak on its own, it will turn you to the God, Yahweh Zaboth. So I ask the question, what is your dominant purpose? What, what dominates you? Now, when I finish this message, I have one final thought I would like to give to you about the sovereign hand of God. God is alive. God is acting for his glory. But let me ask you this question. You think, just think, what is the most, when you look back to the Old Testament, what is the most, and the New Testament, what is, what is the most notable demonstration of a sovereign God? What's the most notable demonstration? Just think, in your heart, don't, not out loud, but in your heart. What's the most notable? The, the Red Sea? The, the Jordan River? David and Goliath? <laughs> Maybe there's another that comes to your mind. Maybe about Hezekiah, you know, the 185,000 that died under King Sennacherib, king of Assyria. You know, one night, boom, one angel, gone. Is that demonstration? The most notable act of God, when God just intervened in history, and when he intervened in history, amazing things took place that only can be attributed to God, not man. I got one for you. To me, the most notable, most incredible, the most amazing intervention of God in this earth is found in a statement in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, what did he do? He intervened. He intervened. And the way that he intervenes, he, he intervenes with his only son, that whoever believes in him, now notice, God gave, he didn't make his son, he didn't kick his son out of heaven, you know, screaming, no, no, no. He, he gave us a gift, his son, that whoever would place their faith, their trust in him, which David was doing, his trust was in God. It was not in swords and in spears. It was not in that which I can touch, feel, and hold. It was in that which was invisible. The battle is the Lord's. And so the greatest intervention is that God, at the appropriate time, sends as a gift to this world his son who comes, that whoever believes in him, not who joins a church, not who gets baptized, whoever places faith in the son, 
will never perish, but have life that is eternal because it's the only kind of thing Jesus offers. He's eternal, so the only thing he can offer is eternal life. But I love what he does. For God did not send his son. There it is again. See, that intervention gave, verse 16, verse 17, he did not give this gift into the world so that the world stands condemned. You know why? Because in John chapter 1, putting the context together, in John chapter 1, just two chapters earlier, he's already said exactly that this world is already condemned. Verse number 9, it is blind, Jesus lights every man. It's without knowledge, he's the, he created all things as the creator, and yet the, he's in the world and they don't know him. And verse number 11, he comes to his own people, the Jews, as the Messiah, and they will not accept him. And I love the words of D.A. Carson in his commentary on this, what he says this, the world is never neutral. It is blind, it is ignorant, and even though it's blind and it's ignorant, it still says, no, I don't want it. You haven't even looked at it. I don't need to look at it. I don't want it. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. It's already condemned. Verse number 18 says, if they don't believe, they're condemned already. But in order that this world might experience the drama of God in the person of his son who makes everything new, that God could take people who place their... You know, the essence of faith, listen carefully, the essence of faith is surrender. Faith is to surrender your will to his will, your thoughts to his thoughts, your plans to his son. The ultimate bottom line of faith is surrender. My heart surrenders to you, God. That's faith. Accepting God's word to be the terra firma, upon which I stand. All other ground is what? We heard that today. It's all sinking sand. I just love 1 Samuel 17 because it shows to me a living God. And it challenges me that my neighbors and my friends and my family and my wife and my children, whenever things happen in my life, the events that I just, I mean, life happens, that when they see my response, I want them to see this. You know what? There's a God who's really living. <laughs> there is a God who is in control of all things. And that is a tragedy for our world today. Our world today does not see a living God because it doesn't see a living church. It sees formalism and decay. It doesn't see relationship and beauty. Let's change that. Would you stand with me for prayer? And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, my prayer this morning with Pastor Les it's two things. Number one, that there could be somebody here who has never put their 
faith, never surrendered their heart, their will. Oh yeah, sing the songs, read the scriptures, do the right thing this hour. But you're not surrendered to Yahweh Zabaoth, to the Son who came from heaven, from the Father, so that you would have life eternal. You say, well, what does that mean? It's very simple. It means this. All you do is in your heart, you just say, Lord, I trust you now. I stopped trusting me. I haven't done a very good job. I trust you. And the moment you do that, put your trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it clear that you will be saved. You, you will be rescued from yourself, from sin, from eternal damnation, and given eternal life. That's what the scriptures say. Just the, the simple surrender of your heart. Would you do that? Would you stop fighting God? Surrender. And then my second prayer is for Christians, you and me. Because I'm not standing before you as a perfect example, I can tell you that. But to us as believers, right now there's something on your heart, your soul, that is so overwhelming only God can do it. Will you let him? Will you let him? And will your testimony resonate with the fact that you believe that? You're not condemning. Jesus didn't come to condemn. They're already condemned. You don't speak in evil. But you will allow God to be God. And as a Christian, would you just... Just sort of uh, renew that to the Lord right now in your heart. Whatever it is, family, personal life, business, whatever it is, would you do that? Father, we're overwhelmed with the glory of the text. We're overwhelmed that a teenage boy can teach us today I mean, we've got information and cell phones. And we travel by jets and cars, beautifully paved roads. And a teenager from 1000 BC can teach us to surrender to God. And Lord, that surrender needs to take place at the very starting place with their heart to Christ. And it needs to continue because it's a life of faith. The just will live by faith. It's a life of faith. It never stops. It's continually giving this over and surrendering to you. Help us not to be hard. Help us to be pliable. And look on our hearts. God, look on our hearts and see a heart like David, a man, a woman, God's heart. You're a great God. It's a joy to open your word. It's also a joy to sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Remain standing, Paul.